We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, I uh, shift gears this morning and actually go back to the book of Philippians in this session, uh, but not chapter 3 where we've been. I want to go back to chapter 1 and verses 6 through 7. So if you would turn there in your Bibles... The uh, I thought it would be a little bit much to try to continue, at least for me and maybe for you too, the series or the uh, message that I gave last week, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. That was enough for now on uh, answering objections to the uh, Christian faith by those who are believers in the Islamic faith. Um, so we'll put that aside. This message actually originated back in December last year. I wrote it uh, mostly back then and never got to share it with you. And uh, how it came up was, I was uh, as I was studying Philippians 1, 1 through 8, I realized there were some issues there that I didn't, I wasn't going to be able to touch on any depth in our preaching series. And I wanted to cover that at some time. I was thinking of doing it a Sunday night or Sunday school, and it just sat there on my desk and waited and waited. And so here it is. Um, Philippians 1, 6 to 7. I want to talk about three issues that we see in these verses. Let's look at them. Paul introduces the letter to the, to the church at Philippi and thanks God for them, uh, gives a report of his uh, thanksgiving prayer in verse number 3 and 4 and 5, being very thankful for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And uh, that fellowship in the gospel is something that we will come to Uh, in the third segment of our message this morning as God gives us time. And then in verse number 6, the scripture says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me, of grace. That's, those are the two verses. So the being confident verse and the thinking of them and the uh, defense and confirmation of the gospel. Okay, so I want to talk about three issues this morning. They're not really, they're connected because they're in these verses, but maybe you'd think they're a little disconnected thoughts. The first is what is the defense and confirmation of the gospel? What is the defense and confirmation of the gospel? In verse number 7, he says they're partners with him or partakers with him in that, not only in his chains, but also in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Remember, Paul saw himself as a prisoner of, not of Rome, he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Okay? He's a prisoner on account of Christ. He had done nothing illegal, he had done nothing immoral, he had done nothing wrong, and he was imprisoned simply because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so he is in chains as a result of his preaching the gospel of Christ. And he says, in that, 
you are with me, and also in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. If I'm, if I'm to get out of this you know, mess, then I have to defend and confirm the gospel in, in, in it. And so we'll look at that in just a moment. The words here for the defense of the gospel, the, the Greek word is the apologia, or the apology, okay? The apologist uh, idea. This does not mean that somebody says they're sorry, nor somebody who makes an excuse it's an apology is a defense, and it's a reply. Think of it like in a courtroom setting. That's what the word really means. Um, when you make a real apology in English, you're not defensive. When you make an apologia, a defense of the gospel, you are defending the gospel very earnestly. So in a courtroom setting, a statement by the defense attorney on behalf of the defendant is an apologia. Paul made his defense before the people, when he was arrested in Jerusalem, remember, rescued, rescued by the Romans from the mob uh, that was about to kill him. He made his defense there. He made his defense before uh, the Sanhedrin. He made his defense before uh, Festus, Felix, King Agrippa. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, sadly, Paul had to make a defense of his apostleship to the Corinthians. You know, we're no less of an apostle than these other apostles are. In fact, you are the fruit of our apostleship, he said, uh, defending himself uh, with uh, some good and clear logic, if you will. There's an example in, in history of Socrates, who was brought up on charges of corrupting the youth of the nation, you know, with his very dangerous ideologies, different ideologies. And uh, Plato and Xenophon, two men, made a defense for him an apologia, a defense for him. The second word that Paul uses is, a conf, is confirmation. The confirmation is a, a word that's a little harder to say. It's bebiose or bebiosi in, uh, in Greek. It's a term that is also used in solemn and legal contexts. Paul is in a legal context, isn't he? He's in a, con- a context where he's got to make a legal defense of himself. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, this word is used. This is a great verse in Hebrews 6. Um, I'll start in verse 13, verse uh, 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for, here's the word, confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Okay, so this, this tells us that by two immutable things, verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have a strong consolation, which have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope that is before us. So it's an example here of Abraham. Uh, remember the Abrahamic covenant went over that with one of our brothers uh, just a few nights ago, the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, God's making this promise, and he swears by himself. So first of all, he makes the promise, and then he makes an oath by himself, and two things in which it's impossible for God to lie on both accounts to make confirmation of that that he is uh, talking about. So it's utterly confirmed, guaranteeing uh, the promise, verifying, making it sure, establishing it, validating it. Think of the defense and confirmation of the gospel in light of the attacks on it during Paul's day and during our own. For Paul, 
the gospel was claimed to be a departure from the Jewish faith. You're not a real Jew. You know, you're off in this cult, this sect, this way. It was claimed to be anti-government. Remember in, in Philippi, these men teach things that are contrary to uh, our customs, or Romans are not allowed to receive these things, uh, you know, that claim to be anti-government. Those claims are made today, aren't they? In communist countries, Christianity is anti-government, they think, when in fact the, the uh, Christian doctrine truly teaches submission to government, you know, in terms of rightly relating to government as long as the government doesn't intercede or intervene in its worship, the church's worship. Later, it was claimed the Christians were cannibals in their communion meal. That was the fake news that they ate the flesh of one Jesus and drank his blood. Very foolish kind of statement. Today, it's claimed that it's intolerant when uh, the Christian teaching is the truest love of God to tell someone of their lostness, of their need for salvation. It's not hateful to do that. It's loving, actually, to do that. Today, people claim the message of God is immoral because it's bigoted when it's actually the message that confronts the immorality of the world and offers forgiveness for it. People say that Christianity is anti-science, but it actually teaches the true basis for all science, logic, human reason, and morality. That's, that statement right there is loaded. If some of you are interested in that, uh, come and see me sometime. We'll get you some resources. That is, again, I'll say it. People say the Bible's anti-science, but in fact it teaches the true and only basis for all science, logic, human reason, and morality. If God doesn't exist, then science doesn't work. We don't exist. Morality doesn't exist. Objective standards don't exist. The laws of nature don't work and so on and so forth. So these terms, defense and confirmation, are used in the field of Christian apologetics, which is focused on what, just what these words mean, defense and confirmation. Um, and some people have gotten PhDs in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So there's a well-known program in that very field at Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, and uh, others, uh, like myself, have taken one or more courses at the graduate level uh, on, that, on this subject. So it's a big subject. We're not going to be able to get into all of it here, but I'm just alerting you to the issue that is here present in Philippians. Um, in Paul's experience of the first century Roman version of apologetics, he had to provide a legal defense for himself and the positive teaching of what the Christian message is. In his case, his life depended on apologetics because if he failed, he was going to be killed as he ultimately was later on. He was facing death in the Roman penal system. Additionally, not just Paul, but because Paul was a representative of Christianity, his, the attack on him meant that Christianity was under attack generally throughout the Roman Empire and it later did become an illegal religion, and it was persecuted by various of the emperors who existed in that time, uh, in those next centuries, until Constantine. So he had to offer a defense of the gospel because he was a primary proclaimer of it in uh, terms of the Roman government and ministry to the Gentiles. His defense was intertwined with the defense of the whole message that he preached. 
Sometimes I think that's helpful for us to remember there's this kind of solidarity or representative nature that is built into the scriptures in various places. You know, Adam represents humanity. Christ represents the new humanity. Paul representing the Christian faith before the Roman government. That It's bigger than just an individual is what I'm saying, this apologia and this confirmation of the gospel. Um, so let me give you just uh, how it's developed up until the present time, just a couple of terms to hang your hat on uh, in terms of this. The field of apologetics has developed various schools of thought, as you would imagine. Different people look at it different ways. The view that I hold to is called presuppositional apologetics, presuppositional. Okay, you with me? I'm really bending your brains now with this. We presuppose that God exists and that he's revealed himself in the Bible. That is, those are the two main axioms of our existence. Can you prove that? Can you prove those two axioms? Well, that's what rational and evidential apologetics try to do, or sometimes what's called classical apologetics. Um, so presuppositional apologetics says that we don't prove that, though, that God exists, for instance, for the non-existence of God is impossible. And how do you prove something? How do you prove a, a, an assertion, say God uh, exists? Well, you have to have some standard of evidence and some mechanism that is of a, a, an effect of a higher authority than, than that statement is. And usually that authority is the human mind. So rational, semi-rational, and uh, evidential apologetics says we can reason our way or see evidence enough to prove to us that God exists. Are you with me? Is everybody awake? Okay. There's one problem with that view, one major problem. The mind of man is darkened in sin. And you cannot, like, guarantee... If I take somebody who's an unbeliever, if I just give them enough philosophy, enough logic, enough reasons, enough evidence that they will believe the gospel, that's not how it works, okay? Um, Ephesians 4.18 says their understanding is darkened. As far as evidences, you know, we can give evidences of history, archaeology, these are all interesting things, especially for believers. Very helpful for us as believers. Fulfilled prophecy. But this falls short of convincing unbelievers of the gospel. It says in Luke 16, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. There is a huge miracle, a huge evidence for the validity of the Christian faith, and people still refuse to believe it. And so thus we have the presuppositional method of apologetics, which presupposes these, these two things, God exists in the Bible's his revelation, and we build from those. Um, and somebody says, well, that's circular. Of course it is. I'll take that charge. Okay? And what about your system of apologetics or defending your views? What does it rely upon? Ultimately, your self-autonomy, your brain, it's, it's circular as well. 
every system that's coherent is that way. Okay, so the notion that we presuppose this, I mean, what do you, if you don't believe the scriptures of God exist, what do you presuppose? Yeah, you presuppose certain things because you think they're right. You're presupposing that your mind is able because it's somehow, you know, not limited or somehow not uh, affected by sin, and it's able to uh, reason through these things and come to a correct understanding. That is not true uh, by, by any means. The natural man is unable to receive the things of the Spirit of God. He needs to have the work of the pre-existing God, the presupposed God, to work in him. But this is just the these ideas. There are, there are arguments in, in apologetics generally. There are arguments for the existence of God. Uh, do you know some of them? The teleological argument, the design argument, that, that there's a designer. Um, there's the uh, anthropological argument, you know, that God has is, is created man. Man is, he, he's a higher being than man. The cosmological argument, the cause and effect uh, kind of thing. If there's, a, if there's an effect, the universe, there must be a what? A cause outside of that effect for the universe uh, there's the moral argument for the existence of God. Some, some say, well, uh, if there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It makes sense. But it's not going to convince an unbeliever to suddenly fall down and worship Jesus. Uh, that's the shortcoming of that. There are, in apologetics, defenses of, of Christianity against other religions. In fact, that's what I was doing last week right, with the uh, objections to the Christian faith and answering those. Uh, there are rationalizations about divine sovereignty and human responsibility in apologetics and confirmation of the gospel. Have you ever thought about, you know, how, how it is that good and evil can exist in God's world? How could God allow terrible things to happen? How could a loving God, you know, you've heard that, right? Well, that that's a question that is is, you know, apologetics and the, the confirmation of the gospel is really aiming to, to work on defending and validating the faith. So you can get all kinds of material on this. So that's just a little bit about the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You and I need to be able to give a credible testimony, witness, and defense of the gospel. We, we must not be lazy-minded and just say, well, I just, you know, I just believe. You just believe. Why? Is there any reason for your belief? You know, we don't do things for which there is no reason, right? Casting ourselves into some black hole of fideism that's called fate, you know, just like a leap of faith into the dark. We don't do that. We do have reasons and, and thinking behind what we do, and it's very uh, rigorous in the end when we fully and finally analyze it, but uh, we don't just throw ourselves out into the dark and say, oh, I just believe it, just by pure blind faith. Okay, the second issue I wanted to touch on briefly this morning is in verse um, 6. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what is God's work in us? Is it a mystical thing that is completely inexplicable except by some strange feeling? Uh, 
Are there means to this work that are normal or natural, or is it supernatural, this work? Paul is confident that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just dip my foot over here into what I'm going to say this morning and speak about again from chapter 4. Paul had abandoned his confidence in the flesh, in his own efforts. We saw that last week. We'll see it again this week, this, this next service here this morning. Um, he instead is confident not of his work, but of God's work. You see that? I'm, he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work, God is the one who has begun a good work in you. You have to acknowledge that, my friends. You did not come to the realization of your need for the gospel, your sin, the provision by yourself. You didn't come to that by your own, you know, IQ, okay? Uh, very high IQ people miss the whole boat on the gospel of Christ. So we have the issue of being confident that God is doing a work. But what is this work? Paul's introductory prayer is that Paul is confident that God will complete that good work, which is the work of salvation in the lives of the Christians there. God had started a work in their church maybe 10 years earlier than, than the writing, that Paul, the time that Paul wrote this. And he committed, he, God, is committed to carrying it through for every single person who comes to Christ. So listen to this. Without a single exception ever, those who turn from sin to Christ will be brought to a place of blamelessness before God without a single exception, okay? God's work will be done. If he starts a work in a person, he doesn't, you know, peter out. Poor Peter. How did, he, how did we get <laughs> Peter out, you know? Um, he will finish it. There is no exception to this. You will be brought to a place of blamelessness before Christ. That is blamelessness not only in standing, justification, but also in practice, eventually. Now, we should, we, should know, we should think about what is the work that God is doing in his people. First of all, there are three aspects to it, which you're familiar with. You could call them the three tenses of salvation. The first is initial salvation. The second is ongoing salvation, which is sanctification. The third is, you know it, glorification. The first, initial salvation, includes your legal uh, being made right before God, justification, okay? That's like the core of the, if you will, the Protestant Reformation, the, the whole notion of being justified by faith before God and having that righteousness of Christ imputed to us. But that's not it. In initial salvation, God also regenerates you. He gives you new life. It's not only that you're imputed the righteousness of Christ, but you're also given a new life. You're put on a new path. You're put into a new realm. You're not in Adam, you're in Christ. You're not in sin, but you're in a, a, a life of righteousness. Okay? You're not subject to death, but you're subject to life. And you have assurance that you are free from the eternal penalty of sin. Even if 10 seconds after this transaction happens to you, you're run over by a bus and you die. And you've had no time to progress in your sanctification. Uh, that's 
too, that's too sad to even think of that possibility, but it's a, a belief that we must hold to if we believe that salvation is entirely a work of God. Secondly, you have the work of God in our ongoing salvation, which is called sanctification. I'm not afraid to use that, by the way, ongoing salvation. Sometimes people you know, say like, oh, it's, you know, salvation's done, it's finished. It's, you, but really, it actually is not finished. It goes on and on and on forever and ever. This, this ongoing part is the part of spiritual life where we spend most of our time you know, if your spiritual, if your Christian life is not 10 seconds before the bus comes, but it's 50 years before the bus comes, whatever that bus might be, some tragedy, some accident, some disease, um, I hope for the rapture myself, but, <laughs> you know, you too, I'm sure. Um, if we are Christians for any duration of time, that is, the most of our life is then spent in this process of sanctification. That's why it's so important. In it, God works to eradicate sin from our lives and cause us to live godly, increasingly holy. We mortify the flesh. God helps us to do that and increase in godliness. This saves you from the practice of sin. The previous, the penalty of sin, this one, the practice of sin, the third is final salvation, which is glorification. That is the part of our spiritual life after the rapture uh, in which we die. Sorry, let me say it more clearly. After the rapture or after we die is what I meant to say, in which our sin nature is completely eliminated. We have a new body. We live with Christ forever. Here we're saved from the very presence of sin and all of its effects. This is the work of God. First, second, third. Sa- uh, salvation initially, glorif- or, uh, sanctification and glorification. How does God do this? Okay, that's what it is, but how does he do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit, first of all. The Spirit of God works savingly and sanctifying, uh, sanctifyingly in those who believe. He applies the blessings of the work of Christ. He dwells in us, regenerates us, baptizes us into union with Christ and his body, guides us and teaches us. Not all in that order, by the way, but he does those things. Secondly, God, how does God work? Secondly, through the work of the word of God, the spirit of God and the word of God. We're reborn by the word of truth, James 1.18 says in 1 Peter 1.23, and we're sanctified by that word. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thirdly, how does God do this work? By the will of God. The spirit of God, the word of God, and the will of God. We are sanctified by the will of God. This is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. We're taught to be thankful. Give thanks in everything, for this is the Will of God, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we are to live for the will of God, 1 Peter 4, 2. God arranges our lives for our ultimate good. And that connects to the fourth item of how God works, and that is through his special care. We, we trust in him that he will sanctify us entirely, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Think of the providence of God that has brought you to where you are given you the parents that you had, the place where you lived, the school where you went, the circumstances that caused you to recognize your lostness, 
that provided with you with the gospel of Christ, that brought you to a church, maybe this church or another church, but eventually to this one, since you're listening here this morning, uh, how he has provided for you, perhaps a spouse, children, grandchildren, um, just how, how the centuries have brought you a Bible in your language that you could use. So this is a tremendous, tremendous thing. Fifthly, through spiritual disciplines, God works through spiritual disciplines. Sometimes, oftentimes it seems imperceptibly, but through the course of time, the spiritual disciplines such as Bible study, prayer, corporate and family worship, hearing, preaching, evangelism, serving God inside and outside of the church, all these things. You can make more or less progress in your Christian faith by diligent or lazy application of these spiritual disciplines. Okay? God works at different rates in different people, but he does work in conjunction with means. And so if you're lazy, you are going to be wasting the opportunity that God has given to you. In other words, if you get up and you say, I don't want to read the Bible. I'm too tired tonight. I don't want to read my scripture. I don't want to spend time in prayer. I just want to. You have got to discipline yourself, my friends. Cut out something else and put in these things in your life. You must. You must. As your pastor, I am imploring you, commanding you, if I may, because I have that authority to do so based on God's word. You must do this. Uh, You must be diligent. And that's why there's differences in spiritual progress in the lives of people. Some people just don't care as much as other people do. And that's a sad testimony of those for those who don't care or don't put forth much effort. The fact is, though, that ultimately it's God who does this work. He gives us hope and confidence because he cannot be stopped. In fact, that fact also gives us humility because this is whose work? God's work. You're participating with God's work. You're not doing it yourself. But we do have a big part to play. God's work goes on in us and our churches in that imperceptible kind of way, but our work is visible, requiring diligence and effort. So God works kind of behind the scenes, if you will, and the things that we do can advance our sanctification or retard it, as the case may be. All right. Well, there was one other issue here. Let me just briefly touch on it. And I know we're just kind of hitting the highlights here, but uh, verse 7 talks about the Philippians. He, uh, Paul has them in his heart because in his chains and confirmation, uh, defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. In the book elsewhere, he says, you shared in my distress. No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You sent once and again for my necessities. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 5 said, um, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So they were partners with him. How can we be better partners for our missionaries? First of all, we give them generous support. They need that. But they need our prayers, uh, more than that even. We should be praying for them. We took on a new missionary just last week, officially, and we should be in prayer for them as well as all of our other ones. Um, I'm not, uh, as I've said before, our philosophy of missions is 
is a church planting, uh, Great Commission focus, and it's not to have as many missionaries on a list as we can. We want to have substantive partnerships with our missionaries, and I pray that you will want to participate in that substantive partnership as well, not just by giving, but by actively being concerned about these ones who are extensions of this ministry out to the uttermost parts of the earth. We must be frequently in prayer for them. Paul says, pray for us, pray that the word of God will have free course, pray that we'll be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, pray that we'll be bold, that we'll speak the gospel as we ought to speak. Uh, Many prayer requests from the Apostle Paul in that case. You say, well, Paul doesn't need prayer, does he? Oh, yes, he does. He's just like we are, human being just like we are. We must be in constant communication, too, with our missionaries. Otherwise, we can't really know them or what we can pray about. We should visit them if we can. That's not easy, I'll say, (laughs) really not easy. I visited several of our GMSA missionaries on a number of occasions. Personally, myself, I have uh, said no to other um, invitations because of time constraints and uh, family and stuff. And so I've been asked to go to New Zealand and South Africa and I don't know where else, but those two come to mind immediately. And I just say, no, I gotta, I'm going to just South America for now, okay? I've got to focus my attention in one, one place just because I am limited um, we also need to be better partners with our missionaries, not for their benefit, but for our benefit, so we can be better Christians. That partnership that I'm talking about makes us more aware of God's work, more aware of the challenges of it, more aware of poverty, more thankful, more intent to carry out the Great Commission in our own neighborhood schools, and so on, more caring less worked up about our own little problems. When you kind of view the missionary picture a little bit more broadly, you realize there are people out there that have real problems, real problems. Some of our problems aren't so big. Some of our disagreements are trivial and should be set aside as we work together to support our missionaries and be, as Paul says, partakers with him of grace. So those are three issues from Philippians 1, 6, and 7, and uh, I trust it's been some edifying to you. If any of those are of interest, you want to look at them some more, let me know, okay? Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are that we can be partners in the gospel, that you're working in us, and that there there is a body of of thought, of scholarship, of, of Christian scholarship in this whole area of apologetics and defense of the faith. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, as I have tried to do today, to put it into a, a context, into a, a bucket that fits alongside of all the other buckets that we have in our mind so that we don't get kind of uh, disproportionately uh, affected uh, or thinking about apologetics or the defense and confirmation of the faith, but we put it in its rightful place and, and recognize, Lord, that without your work, There's no amount of argumentation, no amount of logic, philosophy, or anything that's going to get one into the kingdom of God. So I pray for those people to whom we're witnessing, that we will use responsibly these things we've talked about today, but that also you would be at work in them. I know there are several here, I'm just thinking about 
in my mind's eye who I've seen in the auditorium today who have family members and acquaintances that this is very relevant to, who need the gospel, who need Christ. And we pray that you would open their eyes and that even in a surprise work of the Spirit of God, you would raise up numbers and numbers of people who would come to faith in Christ and use us to be a part of that process for them and to marvel as we see the Lord use the Word of God and and, and our participation in it to bring some to saving faith. Help us to be good defenders and confirmers of the faith once delivered to the saints. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.